Blog Talk Radio. News Network Live Extra. I'm your host, Brooke Hines. What's shaking, you guys? It is Thursday, February the 20th, and it's the day after the debate in Nevada. So, therefore, I am coming to you to share some thoughts post debate, post debate thoughts, as it were. Um, you know, uh, every time we do this, we talk about what was talked about and what wasn't talked about. And uh, uh, last night, I don't know, I don't know how well this applies to last night because last night's debate seemed to be such a, an outlier to me because I think probably because Michael Bloomberg was there. Uh, but one of the things that I thought was really interesting was there was no mention of foreign policy in the debate last night. And, you know, I got to kind of wonder if the lack of foreign policy discussion might have had something to do with Michael Bloomberg. Maybe they were, you know, pitching, pitching towards uh, the strengths of a uh, New York mayor. Who knows? But uh, but no mention of no mention of uh, foreign policy, except for when Bernie Sanders brought up that Michael Bloomberg had uh, endorsed George W. Bush and alluded to what that meant and what that meant with the Iraq War. That was as close as we got to any kind of foreign policy discussion. So that is pretty. Interesting, uh, especially since you know. Consider this: we are we're about to have the Nevada caucus this Saturday, and after that is South Carolina, and then we've got Super Tuesday. And the way that the calendar has been arranged this election cycle, we are on, we're real front loaded. So once Super Tuesday happens, we could have a winner by Super Tuesday uh, or a near winner by Super Tuesday. It, either way, Super Tuesday is going to give us the insight that we need to reasonably discuss what our options are going forward. In other words, by Super Tuesday, we're going to know whether or not we're within striking distance to get a simple majority uh, with the Bernie Sanders campaign. And we will probably have a sense of the odds of a contested convention. Now, 
one of the things that I want to focus on tonight is the threat of a contested convention because it was brought up, I think it was the last question that was posed before closing statements. It was posed by Chuck Todd and he had each candidate go down the line and say whether or not they supported uh, going the way he framed it was if they supported the party rules or if they thought that the person with the highest number of votes should win. And I've got that clip right here. So before we go any further, let's go ahead and take a listen. We are less than two weeks away from a national primary. And I want to ask all of you this simple question. There's a very good chance none of you are going to have enough delegates to the Democratic National Convention to clinch this nomination. Okay? If that happens, I want all of your opinions on this. Should the person with the most delegates at the end of this primary season be the nominee, even if they are short of a majority? Senator Sanders, I'm going to let you go last here because I know your view on this. <laughs> so instead, I will start with you, Mayor Bloomberg. Whatever the rules of the Democratic Party are, they should be followed. And if they have a process, which I believe okay. they do, I'm trying to do so that everybody, everybody else, that. everybody can do. Can do. So you want the convention to work its will? Yes. Senator Warren. But a convention working its will means that people have the delegates that are pledged to them, and they keep those delegates until so the they come person? to the convention. No. Okay. The All righty. Vice President Biden? Yes or no? Leading person with the delegate. Should they be the nominee or not? No, let the process work its way out. Mayor Buttigieg? Not necessarily. Not to listen. Senator Klobuchar? Let the process work. Senator Sanders? Well, the process includes 500 superdelegates on the second ballot. So I think that right. the will of the people should okay. prevail. Yes. Right. Thank you, guys. Should become so, you know, it's a really interesting way that that shakes out there. Uh, which is you heard Elizabeth Warren start to give a little bit more color and try to expand on the concept of uh, what goes on at a convention and what superdelegates and delegates mean prior and during the convention. You heard Bloomberg start to just bloviate on uh, uh, <laughs> randomly because we all know that he really doesn't know anything about how these processes are run within the Democratic Party because he's been a Republican all his life. Then you had, and I thought this was really interesting, then you have Biden and Buttigieg in short order, Klobuchar at the end, but you have Biden and Buttigieg in short order saying, no, let the party's rules play themselves out. And it seemed to me at the time, and even more so re-listening to the clip, that Biden and Buttigieg see that their path to a nomination is through combining their delegates. That the only way that they're going to eke anything out, and it's still not even clear that they would have enough delegates to eke anything out, would be to combine their delegates uh, and, and through a contested convention uh, scenario. And of course, Klobuchar, 
Amy's Amy, so she's going to, you know, be trying and she, until the very bitter end. She is going to, you know, throw a stapler uh, into the void, screaming, uh, uh, trying to win this, trying to win this nomination. Which, you know, I props. I, I, I have to give her some sort of um, respect for that kind of stick to itiveness. Um, now, I thought that Pete Buttigieg's response here was rather interesting because he's had, he's held a different view in the past. So here's Pete Buttigieg on uh, our electoral process from not too long ago. I think at the end of the day, most Americans get that the person who gets the most votes probably ought to win and, and that everybody ought to have the same voting power as everybody else. Like, these are not complicated principles. Not too complicated unless you're getting ready to lose the nomination uh, and the rules could work in your favor if, uh, if conveniently you didn't uh, 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 apply them as, as they stand. Now, you know, notice that the way that the question was framed was already already showed some hostility towards uh, Bernie Sanders and hostility in the nicest way possible. Like Chuck Todd was smiling and he said, you know, I know what you think, but we're going to see what everybody else thinks. But the way that the question was framed is, you know, should this be the rules or should this be the vote? The rules or the vote? That's the way it, that's the way it shakes out. That's, that's the only two ways it goes, rules or vote. And, uh, and of course, Bernie Sanders says, you know, the will of the people is, is through the vote, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I don't think that this is idle chit-chat. And so I think that it's really important that we start preparing for what could happen in Milwaukee this summer. Uh, there is a group called Burn It Down, or, yeah, Burn, B-E-R-N, burn it down and they can be found at burnitdown.com they are working on contingencies to protest in milwaukee look them up great group of people sign up for their email volunteer do what you have to do especially if you live up in the um uh upper heartland up there the northern heartland reaches uh also uh, that's a great place to be in the summertime. I would much rather be in Milwaukee than Orlando come July. So, you know, let's, let's start thinking about our travel plans now. Uh, this is not just being talked about at the convention. As a matter of fact, the Washington Post did an op-ed day before yesterday, February 18. Uh, this is an op-ed by Julia Azaria, who is an associate professor and assistant chair in the Department of Political Science at Marquette University, and it is the third op-ed in a series about how to improve the presidential nominating process. So there's been others, and this isn't the only one that is focusing on uh, uh, the possibility of a contested convention, but this political science from Marquette uh, believes uh, or at least says so in this paper, that, uh, the, the, that the process 
could be improved upon. So, so here's what she says. Um, the system as it works now, with a long informal prim primary, lots of attention to early contest and sequential primary season that unfolds over several months, is great at testing candidates to see whether they have the skills to run for president. But what it's not great is choosing, it is not great at choosing among the candidates who, who can clear the bar or bringing their different ideological factions together or reconciling competing priorities, which to be honest, that's not baked into the cake in American politics. We don't have the kind of system that they have in Europe where you can form coalition governments. You know, these, those are the types of things that you see where, um, where you have more than one political party that, that has viability. So for instance, when there's, three or four or five or six political parties that have to come together to form a coalition, it, that's when it makes sense. When it's just two parties, the assumption is that everyone's either on the one side or everyone's on, on the other side. So it's assumed that, that there's no need to create a coalition. That's the way it's been. That's the way it's worked. She goes on. A process in which intermediate representatives, elected delegates who understand the priorities of their constituents, can bargain without being bound to specific candidates, might actually produce nominees that better reflect what voters want. So I'm, I'm, I'm wait, it's radio, so you can't see. I just, that was a huge face palm right there. Uh, by cutting voters out, we're actually going to be able to represent them better. That's that's what Julia is saying right here, this uh, assistant professor of political science at Marquette University. I'll say it again. A process in which intermediate representatives can bargain without being bound to specific candidates might actually produce nominees that better reflect what voters want. And that right there, if you were wondering... Uh, what could possibly be the most disgusting neoliberal, you know, bunch of crap? That's it. We we're we're just voters. We have no way of knowing what we really want. We can't uh, actually depend on ourselves to pick a candidate. What do we know? We don't know nothing. Uh, that's that's what she's saying right there. It's super condescending, and uh, you might guess that that. Uh, I find that very irritating. She goes on to say, a nomination contest is not like a general election. They aren't being fought to win, but to go on to November. But the kinds of processes that we associate with more open and high quality democracy, high quality democracy, like it's a luxury goods, may not actually help parties produce nominees that reflect the party's overall concerns. And there you got it. What she's really interested in is the party's overall concerns. Not your concerns, not my concerns, not the concerns of everyday workers, certainly not the concerns of, uh, of poor people, but rather the concerns of the party. 
this is what concerns uh, Julia here. Let me see if there's anything else that I've marked up. Um, like I said, this isn't the only op-ed to have appeared on this subject in the last few days. Uh, and it probably won't be the last because I think that since what happened at the debate last night, we are going to see a lot more people talking about a broker con convention. Uh, I bet it starts to trend somewhere, um, perhaps on Twitter. Uh, what do we want to do from here? Uh, Lee Fong did a piece in the middle of last year, so June 30, 2019. Go to The Intercept. Lee Fong did a great overall explainer on a contested convention uh, situation. So this is, the, this is The Intercept from June 30, 2019, and you know, he breaks it all down for you and, and gives you a sense of, of the uh, history here. For instance, the last time the Democratic Party went to a brokered convention to select a nominee was in 1952, when it took three ballots to nominate Adelaide Stevenson. Um, there's a couple of good tidbits in there. He also says, the scandal plagued the 1968 convention when Hubert Humphrey won the nomination without running in the primaries led to populist reforms that largely removed the power of the party bosses, added transparency, and centered the nomination on the will of voters. The following presidential cycle ushered in uh, George McGovern as the party candidate. And then, so what happens is the party doesn't get behind McGovern, uh, they, McGovern loses, and then we have this uh, um, Hunt Commission led by North Carolina Gover Governor James Hunt, which sought to return the power, the lion's share of power back to the party and to take it away from the people. And that's when we got uh, nominees. Was in, it was during this time, during this era, that we got nominees like Jimmy Carter and Walter Mondale. Mondale got name-checked last night by Pete Buttigieg, and Amy Klobuchar seemed to, it, he was comparing Amy Klobuchar to Walter Mondale as a, um, you know, as a senator from Minnesota, you know, what are you actually capable of? That was kind of his point, and she didn't take kindly to that. That was that was uh, kind of funny. But, uh, yeah, Walter Mondale, 1984, uh, was opposing Reagan and Bush. Reagan had already been in for one term. And Mondale picks Geraldine Ferraro as his running mate, so would have been the first woman in the White House way back in 1984. I remember being in college and having a Mondale Ferraro rally card in my dorm window and also being the only person on my campus, I think, who, who, uh, who, who was a Democrat, actually. But uh, yeah, so, so this was a time when there was a lot of Reagan 
populism and you know people were people were in love with Reagan at this point especially where I went to school in Upper East Tennessee uh Mondale lost that election in a freaking landslide uh the only state they the 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 Democrats won was Minnesota that was the only state it was the it was the saddest election night map ever uh, look it up sometime if you want to if you want to see how far we've come from there. What I think Lee Fong does in this article that is really valuable is towards the end where he talks to some uh, folks in the party and you know way back a half a year ago he's getting he's taking the temperature. Uh, he's taking our temperature kind of as, as progressive Democrats as to what a broker convention would mean to us. And so he talks to well, one of the first per- people he talks to, which I wouldn't exactly put under the category uh, of a progressive um, uh, partisan. He's got Ray Buckley, chair of the New Hampshire Democratic Party, who also serves as, as a superdelegate. Uh, he at the time rejected the possibility that a brokered convention would happen. He just thought it was you know, outside the realm of, of the possible. He said that he believed the contest would be wrapped up by Easter and said that the current rules that allocate, that allocate delegates either on a proportional basis for each for every candidate who earns at least 15% of the votes in each state or based on a percentage received by the candidate with the most votes, if no candidate reaches 15% threshold. He thinks that that kind of math right there is number one, understandable, and number two would protect us from going to a brokered convention. I don't know. I think that's a magical thinking, but um, he says uh, the math simply isn't there for a second ballot. He thinks that this will be wrapped up on the first ballot. Now, back in late June, early July of 2019, I think that everybody thought that there would be an establishment candidate like Joe Biden just run away with this. And if it wasn't Joe Biden, maybe it would be Elizabeth Warren or, you know, maybe it was Kamala Harris. I think that's what these folks were looking for. They were not expecting Bernie Sanders to do as well as he's done. But then we get then we get a quote from Nick Brana, who's the uh, founder of the Movement for People's Party. And I'm sure a lot of the listeners follow uh, uh, Movement for People's Party or talk to these guys, uh, awesome bunch of people. And he says, in the event of a brokered convention, the donors and lobbyists will insist that the party nominate the establishment candidate. And this comes about as a warning from Nick Brana. He goes on to say uh, that um, others are party officials and members of Congress who are personally close with donors, dependent on them, or plan on seeking high-paying corporate and consulting jobs in the future. So he's pointing out the inherent conflicts of interest with superdelegates and going to a uh, second ballot. He says superdelegates are a reinvention of the party bot system, and um, they were created to give party insiders veto power over a progressive nominee 
and they would fulfill that mission. Like he menses no words. They will fulfill that mission. Further down, David Siegel, executive director of Demand Progress, was heavily involved in the failed effort to do away with superdelegates. Now he worries that the current system could lead to dysfunction and a small number of powerful insiders effectively hijacking the nomination. Now, this is what this is what you saw being talked about last night at the debate. And the way that they're framing it is not a bunch of powerful people usurping the process. The way that it was framed was, oh, this would be following the rules. Like, as if uh, winning an election by winning the most votes is somehow just crazy talk, all right? He goes on to say, quote, there's a serious likelihood that we end up in a convention where there's no candidate with a clear majority of pledged delegates or even a substantial plurality, Siegel said. He says, there's reason to be concerned that in general, superdelegates would skew the outcome in a less progressive populist direction and it's more generally possible that the process could be particularly contentious and lead to unusual outcomes. I find that when people use the word unusual in in that way, what they're talking about actually is things just really going all to hell. The unusual outcome of things just going all to hell, I think it's, that's that's what he means to say. Uh, he also imagined the possibility, and this has been brought to me, uh, up to me by more than one person, the scenario right here. He imagined the possibility that the process could become so contentious that party leaders push for the nomination of a candidate who wasn't even running. Now, the name that has been mentioned to me repeatedly, uh, not just by, you know, Twitter buddies and, you know, kind of riffraff that comes and hangs out with me, but, uh, but party insiders and, and folks who should, who have an insight into these kinds of things have mentioned to me that Adam Schiff could be one of the folks that gets mentioned under these circumstances. Uh, we'll see, you know, I want to say, let's not get too riled up about this right now. I would love to say that because that seems like the reasonable thing to say. And that seems like the reasonable way to uh, kind of center ourselves going forward. But I don't think that that's a really smart thing to do. As a matter of fact, I think that what we need to be doing right now is planning for a worst case scenario. Now, you know, we've already seen media personalities like Chris Hayes imagine that that a that a Sanders nomination or Sanders presidency would lead to executions in Central Park or be akin to that, or maybe Cuba would invade. I don't know exactly where he was going with that, uh, but. 
I think that he's still freaked out a little bit because right before the debate last night, he had Nina Turner on for this very odd conversation. The election doesn't flat out. What Senator Sanders is doing, Chris, is building a real grassroots movement, having conversations with people. What Mayor Bloomberg is doing is just spread spread. You mean buying using money to get votes? He is, is that what you're saying? Are you saying using money to get $350 million worth of ads, his own money? Okay, just look okay, at your we, definition. He's buying an election using money to get votes. He is using. You know what I'm saying? Well, I know exactly what you're saying. Know you know I'm, I'm not saying. going down that road. What I am saying is that he's not building a movement. He's not talking to the people. He's just throwing his money out there. But that's not going to, to work. Okay, if I'm in college right now and I had student loans that got me through college, if somebody came along and said, I'm to pay up all your student loans and what else and if you're going to public university i'm paying all your tuition is that buying votes we are sounds like getting a policy in this country that says right. that just in the same way we have k-12 education right. that's publicly funded sure. in the 21st century we need the paradigm shift pre-k to college that is what we need because people don't have disposable income they're walking across the stage with a degree in one hand and debt in the other okay but so Chris Matthews wants to equate Bernie Sanders's uh, popular populist platform. He wants to equate that with Mayor Bloomberg buying an election. Maybe he's excusing Bloomberg. Maybe he's just trying to, you know, reach really, really far and find a way to hit Bernie Sanders. You know, maybe this is something that Andrew Lack uh, passed to him on a post-it note. Uh, but what he was saying there, if you could hear it, was that working towards policy that would improve the economic security of working people is akin to or equal to buying votes. Like, you've got to freaking be kidding me. What planet is this guy from? This is the way that politics works. We live in a country, we pay taxes, we're part of communities, and we come together to make things happen. And when the rules start to get so twisted and so out of control that you have to go into uh, debt to the tune of six figures in order to get a stupid bachelor's degree, then something's broken and something needs to be fixed. It's the responsible thing to do because right now we are going to have a couple of generations. We already do have a couple of generations. I'm Gen X. And I got to tell you, most of the people that I went to school with, uh, weren't able to buy houses, weren't able to start families, uh, when, weren't able to start families when they wanted to or when they needed to, and either just, you know, decided to have dogs at a certain point or, uh, or were lucky enough if they did go ahead and have kids, they, they had parents who could uh, kind of swoop in and, and help them out. Uh, those of us who didn't have parents who could swoop in and help us out, we had to be very careful and make sure that uh, that uh, 
that nothing happened to our ability to make money uh, to, to support ourselves because we, you know, we're flying without a safety net, um, especially for women, you know, like, let's talk about this. Let's talk about the economic uh, uh, dimension of reproductive justice because as a woman who is, you know, you, you get out of high school, you get into college, you're in your early 20s, your body is the healthiest it's ever going to be. You know, your body, everything about your body is telling you, hey, it's time to have kids because you can keep up with them now. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of people don't understand and don't realize that once you get into your 30s that it starts to be, it starts to be a, a um uh, what is it called? Uh, highly problematic pre- pregnancies. There's a word for it. Uh, but but once you're in your 30s, it's it becomes much less likely that you're going to be able to have kids. Uh, things like miscarriages are much more common, and it, it, it's it's just uh, oh that word's almost coming to me. It's uh it's mo- it's more dangerous. It's more dangerous for the mother. It's more dangerous for the child. But the reality is is after high school, you're 18, you've got four years in your bachelor's degree. Some people take more. So 22, 23, then you get your first really, really crappy jobs, 24, 25. If you're lucky, around 25 or 26, you could start thinking about having a kid and not completely screw yourself over economically for the rest of your life. That's just the way it is. Or you could marry a doctor. <laughs> or you could be a doctor and and have your husband, you know, stay home and take care of the kids. Um, but you can't it, it, economically. It's almost impossible to do it all, and it and it aggravates me no end that that there are you know still people saying, oh, just lean in, just lean in and do it all. Well. You know, lean in all you want if you've got rich parents. Lean in all you want if you've got an inheritance. Lean in all you want if you have a free house to live in or you live in your hometown and you've got grandparents who will watch, watch the children. Lean in. Just keep leaning in. But the rest of us who didn't have that or who don't have that and won't have that going forward, they're not able to do the things that are considered, you know, adulting. So Gen X. The little Gen Y that came after us, and then millennials, uh, and what comes after millennials. Economically, we are so marginalized that it is impossible for us to follow a normal developmental, uh, lifetime developmental uh, trajectory. And that's if you're lucky. And and I know plenty of people who didn't have a choice and, you know, went ahead and had kids before they they got their degrees. And, you know, uh, it, it's, you know, you're, you're either going to be very, very lucky and, and, you know, someone's going to come along and, you know, help you out and give you a job. And maybe you'll find childcare, maybe not. Uh, 
I mean, most likely what that's doing is it's consigning you to uh, economic insecurity for the rest of your life, for you and your kids. And this is just, and I'm just talking about the student loan part. That's not even taking into account the situation that we have right now with medical debt. And as Bernie Sanders points out on his website with regard to medical debt, that the people who are most likely to be deep in medical debt are people who are 27 years old and have come off of their parents' insurance. You know, and if you, you know, you can go back over what I was the, uh, um, the timeline that I just laid out, you know, if, if you're, super freaking lucky you might get around to having a kid before you're 25 or 26 while you're still on your parents insurance or maybe you're lucky enough and it's hard man it is hard maybe you're lucky enough at that age to get into a job where you're offered benefits maybe I wasn't able to get into a job where I was offered benefits until I was 33 33. I spent most of my life without health insurance. Um, so medical debt, you add the medical debt to the student loan debt, and you've got people who are basically uh, in, in um, debt peonage. You know, uh, you know we, we talk about wage slaves. There's also debt peonage. If you owe a, if you owe six figures or thereabouts for your education, and then you owe maybe another twenty thousand or thirty thousand in medical debt, how do you get out of that? How do you get out from under that? Most of the people that I know, all of the people that I know who found themselves in that situation, pretty much were like, "I can't do it." I, I, I just can't do it. You know, uh, that means you can't buy a car. That means that you're never going to have a credit card. That means that you are going to be economically marginal and, and, and marginal in other ways for the rest of your life. Because once you're economically marginalized, then you can be marginalized in other ways in society. So, you know, so, you know, combine that with like stop and frisk programs and and different ways that the young people, especially people of color, find themselves within the criminal justice system. The deck is stacked against us and it's stacked against us in a major, major way. And so when Chris Matthews comes along and says something like uh, like what he said right here, that, oh, you just want free stuff or you're buying people's votes with free college, I take that super freaking personally. And you should too, you know, because he's not just this isn't hypotheticals. This isn't uh, abstract. We're not doing geometry or algebra here. These, we're talking about real people who have real lives that are getting really messed up. And they've been getting really messed up for a couple of generations. And we've got to fix it because there's no more room to put any more burden on our young people. It's morally wrong, first of all. But secondly, there's just no more room to do it. Now, 
there were uh, there was one other thing I wanted to share with you with regard to these delegates. This is uh, Jeff Weaver was on CNN earlier today, and he was asked by the interviewer about the situation with a broker convention and with delegates. So have a listen. Well, you know, we're working very hard. Got to ask you about the final round of questioning last night over delegates and the convention. Sanders was the only candidate to say that the person, the candidate with the plurality. Hold on. Technical difficulty. We're back. Here we go. So, you know, we're working very hard. Got to ask you about the final round of questioning last night over delegates and the convention. Sanders was the only candidate to say that the person, the candidate with the plurality of delegates, not the majority, should be the nominee. He was the only one that took that position last night on stage. Will you acknowledge, Jeff, the hypocrisy in taking that position compared to four years ago? Why I don't I don't know why you would say that, Kate. Why is there any hypocrisy in that position? We we went into the convention last time. We did not have uh, uh, enough delegates, and Bernie Sanders uh, endorsed Hillary Clinton, and nominated her from the floor by acclamation. Uh, went on to campaign for her all across the country. So you know, while the campaign was going on, and there were a number of super delegates, you know, at, at that point there were super delegates that they play a different role now. But, but you know, they they could switch their votes at the last right. minute. This is so disingenuous, and it, it, it aggravates me no end. Uh, it angers me no end to see a, a television personality push this to Jeff Weaver, because what she's doing is she's saying that the, that the campaign or that Bernie Sanders is a big old hypocrite, um, because if you believe the lies that the corporate media has been telling you for the last four or five years, then you would think that Bernie Sanders went into the convention contesting it, and he didn't. He went into the con- to, he went into the very last week before the convention. Uh, if he had won California, he might have had enough delegates. But you saw what happened with the Associated Press and. Uh, and, you know, how they called up superdelegates the night before people voted and then used Rachel Maddow's show to to uh, to signal boost that, oh, it's all over. We counted the delegates. So there's no reason to count votes in California. So people who were going to vote in California decided not to lie. People decided not to vote. But even worse the state party chair decided not to count the freaking delegates. And guess what? That state, uh, 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 that chair, the person responsible for that is now on the rules committee who will be overseeing the rules in the convention in Milwaukee this summer. So interesting stuff. I'm going to... I am not going to beat you over the head with too much more of this, but I do want to take a caller or two. So give me just a second. I'm going to regroup real quickly and bring on a caller or two. There we go.
<laughs> That's our call-in music. <laughs> All right, so I got a caller from 321. 321 uh, is the Space Coast uh, Exchange or area code. Uh, hello, you're on the air with Progressive News Network. How you doing? Is this me? Yes, this is you. Oh, hi there. I'm fine. Great show. I just thought I'd call in and... Uh, uh, offer comments if you want it. Uh, I thought all the things you're uh, mentioning were interesting. Yes. <laughs> Did you have a particular thing you saw comment on tonight? Oh well, you know. So one of the things that I was I, that I was focusing on is a contested convention. Like, um, so well, I, I'm making some assumptions. Are you, like me, like a, a Bernie supporter? Absolutely. And would it, how would you feel if Bernie Sanders had a plurality of votes, which means, you know, uh, had the most votes of other people going into the convention, a plurality, but didn't have a majority, which would take uh, 1,990 uh, delegates, what if what if he had a plurality and a good plurality and or any time plurality and but not the majority and how 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 would you feel what would your headspace be if the party then went to a contested convention and tried to put up someone like Biden and Buttigieg because this is the way it would happen you know, like like Biden and Buttigieg could combine their delegates and. And, you know, if they empty their little cookie jars and they each have enough delegates to get over uh, 1,990, then they can go, oh, oh, me. Or it could be Biden and Warren or Warren and Klobuchar, however it goes. How would that make you feel? Yeah, I mean, I think the DNC is signaling that that's going to be their last stand because they're so, you know, uh, averse to Bernie Sanders, I guess, because he's not plugged into the proper power network or didn't, you know, kiss the right rings or whatever it is. But there's basically a group of people in control that do not see him as a member of the group. So they've threatened and attempted in every way as have their, you know, friendly voices on the cable news channels to, to stop him. Advisor, and Jeff Weaver. It's good to see you, Jeff. If he, Sorry about that. Oh, it, I mean, if you were to come into the convention with a plurality and they went to the superdelegate program and uh, forced some other set of nominees down the, the voters' throats, I think, number one, they would lose. Uh, that candidate I, I, I will not win because it will toxify the water. It will poison the well. I mean, there was, there was a hint of that with uh, 2016, I think, for people who uh, preferred uh, – Sanders over Clinton at the time felt like she was sort of forced down everyone's throat by a super delegates, the way the, the cable news channels always reported her, you know, insurmountable super delegate lead, you know, all through the primary. So it just looked like it was pointless from the beginning, that whole scheme, the whole super delegate scheme, which the Republican party doesn't even do. Uh, I think we know the roots of it. were all in what was it, the 68 convention um, where the you know the party was uh, expressly looking for a way to not be taken over by grassroots movements. I mean, this is an owned thing. The the Democratic Party is owned 
by people, uh, not the voters in the minds of the people that run it. I think in the minds of the voters, the party is owned by the voters. That's what the question is. It's a question of ownership. So the party feels like they own it. And if a bunch of just people are going to show up and vote for somebody that they don't like, they're not having it. But I, I would argue that they don't really have a choice because if enough people want something and they're the only ones that are going to support you, you need them, period. I, I think there's been a whole you know, ugly dynamic since 2016 of party leaders and party elites you know, yelling about Susan Sarandon and Jill Stein and blaming everybody in the world for people not voting the way they wanted them to. But I don't think voting works that way. I don't think you can bully and shame people into voting for who you want. And furthermore, if you take the vote out of their hands and say it doesn't matter how you vote, we're just going to decide this in a smoky room, as the DNC said it could do in court, or they they pull a fast one with the superdelegates, I think they might as well just lock the door and burn the party to the ground because it's – and, it, it you know, it, it needs to be a strong showing, I think, for – the Sanders people to make that argument. But if it is strong, if it's even a plurality, I, I think they're just they're just gutting themselves. If they pull a move like that, it would destroy any remaining shreds of credibility and any party that emerged after that would not be the party that we see today. Those people would be uh, dead and gone as far as their power goes. And I, I wonder if they realize that. It, uh, I think that some people realize that, you know, I've been, I've been putting out feelers to the, uh, to the folks that I know that are, you know, kind of within the party structure and know a little bit about this and reluctantly, like I have to drag it out of them, but reluctantly I will get uh, answers of, um, yeah, that it, that it, the, be highly bad for the party or that would be completely damaging to the party but it's it's not the first thing they say the first thing they want to say is this kind of gentleman's oh we don't think that'll happen or you know don't worry about that but you know for what we saw in iowa uh at the first caucus uh could could be repeated in nevada now, if you remember, in 2016, Nevada was the site of some quite incredible uh, uh, messing around with the with the process. Nevada being a caucus, they uh, they they vote on delegates. This is the this is the uh, kind of process that the Washington Post is touting as a possibility that. Maybe we should just go towards that kind of representation where you just pick delegates and then the delegates pick your pick your nominee. So this is what this is what Nevada does, and they have a convention. And at the convention, that's where the delegates uh, are counted, and and they vote for their candidate. But at the last minute in 2016, the executive committee of the Nevada Democratic Party, without a without enough people there for a quorum, by the way, the executive committee decided that they were going to keep out uh, a number of the Bernie delegates 
So they just didn't let them in the room. There was a whole a whole bunch of them, dozens of them, that would just weren't let, let into the room. And then at the last minute, again, they gave the party chair the power of gave, – gave the party chair this imperial power that whatever she says goes. So what she did was she got up on stage and she said – we're gonna do. We're just gonna do a voice vote, and if you're for Hillary Clinton, say yay. So a bunch of people say yay. If you're for Bernie Sanders, say yay. Clearly, the Bernie Sanders people had it. I mean, the, the it's obvious on on any recording. But she gabbled in that Hillary Clinton was going to be the the, the choice for Nevada, and people were very upset. Now, before she did that, she actually brought in police. So she was, she was uh, saying all this from the stage in an auditorium where she had a line of, of like, you know, riot officers in front of her. So that was messed up. But then what happened was the editor of the paper in, um, in, that part of Nevada, and I'm not sure if it's Las Vegas, but it's John Ralston, who who was a co-moderator last night at the debate. John Ralston completely fabricated a story that people were throwing chairs at the Nevada convention. Just fabricated it. He he didn't witness it. He he, he claims that there were uh, other media people who who saw it happen, but nobody could. Nobody could produce anything. Nobody on the floor could say anything. And, and, and it's so bad that uh, Snopes actually debunked the whole thing. And up until uh, the last time he was asked, which is fairly recently, he was still sticking by his story that people threw chairs and that anybody who disagreed with him were chair truthers. And so... <laughs> I remember seeing a picture. I think what they finally came up with was one person holding a chair mm -hmm. uh, and that apparently they were convinced to put the chair down and nothing happened chair-wise. But I think that was the seed from which they took uh, the violent chair throwing because that's, that's all that ever appeared. I don't even know if that was authentic, but at most it appears like someone held a chair. <laughs> I, have, I have seen that. Right. They they held a chair in anger. Um, it's like violence. It's a violent chair holding. You, you've hurt me with your chair holding. <laughs> Lord have mercy. Uh, so, okay, so we're getting ready to have a caucus in Nevada, the same state, and they were going to use the shadow app that, it created the fiasco, part of what created the fiasco in Iowa, and scratched the shadow app at the last minute and said, no, we're going to do stuff on special iPads. So it couldn't just be people with a pen and paper and a calculator. No, they have to have special iPads because there's all this special math. So you got to be, you know, understand what they're doing is a version of the electoral college, you know, special math means they are weighting certain areas less or more than other areas. That's where the math comes in. So now 
you have to do the special math on special iPads that are used as tools uh, because they are not using an app <laughs> that would be uh, a, a a security risk. So <laughs> these iPads are are somehow not a security risk in their eyes. How? What are you expecting to see this weekend out of Nevada? Do you have any do Do you have any spidey sense about you know what could possibly happen? Well, now I'm remembering what you said about 2016 and uh, freaking out a little bit. I mean, we'll we'll have to see, won't we? But I mean, yeah, all this nonsense with the apps and the iPads and the shadows and the acronyms. I mean, it's it's hard to tell where the incompetence ends and the corruption begins. Uh, but I, I remember it was really weird in Iowa, the whole Buttigieg thing, where he's claiming victory in the middle of all the confusion. It sure kind of smelled funny. And, you know, and given the history and given also the, what is it, the, the local the local Nevada Democratic chair is this virulent anti-Bernie person who's like, I believe he mm-hmm. told him, I, I won't say a bad word on your air, but I believe he told Bernie Sanders to go F a pile of rocks, like on Twitter or something. Um, That's right, it, he did. I, yeah, I mean, really, really pretty talk there from the local the local Democratic chair. So, yeah, I think everybody's going to have to be on guard. I think there's a possibility, uh, maybe a strong possibility of shenanigans, and you have to hope that people are in good faith, uh, but, uh, you know, watch them like hawks. I hate to quote Reagan, but trust but verify. I mean, if they, if they nonsense merges, I think people are going to respond to it very strongly, because they're primed for it, both from the last presidential primary and from the, you know, the obvious shenanigans in, in Iowa. So here's the latest numbers we have on Nevada. This is from Emerson polling. Bernie Sanders is polling at 30%, and the next person after him is Buttigieg at 17%. So that's uh, 13 points. 13 points behind. It's double digits plus behind the front runner. Buttigieg at 17, Biden at 16, Warren at 12, and Klobuchar at 11. So if you take 11, 12, 16, and 17, you might be able to get two others for a total of three. You might get a total of three candidates coming out of Nevada splitting delegates. And Bernie Sanders has this very, very clear lead. But as we saw in Iowa, he could come out with fewer delegates or, or the same delegates as uh, uh, some, some other combination that gets combined on the second round during the caucus. Because remember in second round, uh, we um, move people from the first vote over to uh, over to the uh, another vote, so they they reapportion. And 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 by the way, why do we have caucuses? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I mean, used to be I used to be idealistic about it. I used to think, oh, it's people getting together in an auditorium and celebrating democracy together, and nothing could be further from the truth. 
maybe at some point in America's history it worked that way. But I mean, and, and I think that's other people that like it, like it for the reason you just said, and that's the idea behind it. But, in, you know, in the modern world, first of all, it's regressive because people who work the way people have to work now uh, can't take off and go caucus in the middle of the day. So, God, you saw that stuff in Iowa. There were 12 people at some of those sites, you know, or 20. It's not representative, you know, by any means. And it's subject to all kinds of, I'll use the word again, shenanigans. I mean, whether it's, you know, people being locked out, we heard reports about in 2016 or rejected or, yeah, you know, crazed, you know, uh, people, you know, with lines of cops in front of them taking imaginary voice votes. I mean, I, I think we just need to vote. You know, uh, and that would be nice to see. And I, I wonder if it's not being kept on because it is so subject to being sort of smushed around and muddied up. And I mean, I, I felt that that was I really came away with from Iowa with a bad taste in my mouth. And I think a lot of people did. A lot of people were saying that's the end of the caucus there uh, because it was such a, you know, just it's such a, 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 a cluster uh, mm-hmm. uh, shenanigans. <laughs> cluster, cluster was, shenanigans. Was, I'm trying to be civil here. Um, you know, we're all supposed to be civil, but yeah, I, I, why caucuses? Why is it this, this murky? You know, I, I think at this point, it, it's being kept around because it is subject to manipulation and being made opaque. And unfortunately, you know, that's that's the battle we have now. Is we've got on the Democratic side, we've got a party at war with a lot of its base and, you know, trying to, you know, there's going to have to, it's going to have to be big. And I think Mm -hmm. if you're a Bernie person and you want things to change, we have to not only win, but win big, win in a way where it is obvious to everyone what a disaster it would be to just undercut it uh, and how, what a losing proposition that is. I'm not even sure that that's enough. I could be really cynical and imagine them just setting fire to the whole thing because there are some people that are so opposed to these really very minor, you know, common policies that are being proposed. Good God, everybody in the world but us has government-managed health care because it works well. And it's being treated as though, you know, the proposal is, you know, cannibalizing children or something. These, these are small things. But to people in power or people whose money is at stake, apparently it's uh, – have you heard the, the phrase existential threat? They're saying it on, on the cable news all the time, existential threat. They've got to stop this. I, I, no explanation is being given except that this is just unacceptable for someone outside of a certain circles to be, to be doing too well and that that's, that's got to be stopped. I heard Katie Couric today, my satellite radio was messing up and I accidentally listened to Katie Couric and she had she had someone on, oh she had um Bluebird's guy on his campaign manager I don't know the name and uh, she was asking him about various things about the debate and she, and she unprompted uh said but what you've got to do is slow down Bernie Sanders right that's the emergency I mean she she brought that up as the focal point of, of what Bloomberg's campaign is supposed to be about, which is something I can, I can imagine people claiming is a, you know, the paranoid ravings of, of Bernie Sanders people imagining that he's so important that Bloomberg is just there to torpedo him. And here's Katie Couric, 
you know, Abidicio just herself proposing that that's what Bloomberg is supposed to be doing is stopping Bernie Sanders. This is, you know, this is national news having a chat with his campaign and saying, well, we, you know, we hope you're going to stop this madman who wants people to have health care. I mean, it's, it's just absurd. It's just a really a, a surreal situation. And I, I think it's going to go one of a couple of ways and, and, or maybe one of two or three ways and a couple of them could be potentially very ugly. And I hope it doesn't go down like that. I hope that our better angels prevail and we reach some kind of consensus that people can live with. Um, because if it's just undercut at the last second by a few people in charge of the party, I think it's it, it's going to be bad. And I, I hope that that's not what we're going to see. I hope that we just, uh, you know, being a birdie person, I hope that he wins. But um, we, we'll have to see. There's a lot of talk about the momentum having gotten so strong at this point that there's, you know, they're, they're starting to talk about him in inevitable terms. And that can change the conversation um, if that becomes, you know, accepted narrative. Uh, but I don't know. These are desperate these are desperate people. You know, I, I, I feel like there are people holding this party hostage who would do something crazy to stop this. You know, my God, Chris Matthews thinks someone's going to take him into Central Park and execute him if, you know, this mild-mannered guy from Vermont comes in and gives us health care. It's, it's and you know what, really what, nutty. You know what really bothers me about that is, is – yeah, it's this yelling fire in a crowded uh, theater yes. kind of situation. Absolutely. Because you know, <laughs> it's <laughs> Cuba was not on its way over to the United States to execute people. That was not what was Do going on. Do not be red. <laughs> That's not what was going on during the Cold War. That was War. a historical was document, not... Red Dawn. <laughs> I saw Jennifer Gray and Patrick Swayze and C. Thomas Howell fighting for their lives when the Cubans <laughs> parachuted into the United States amid clusters of nuclear weapons, and then Powers Booth saved America. I remember that. Oh my happened. god, that was real. Was it? Was it Cuba in the movie? Yeah, the way that I mean, the way they had it laid out, I guess, was that you know the whatever the missile crisis worked out differently, and there were nuclear weapons there. And yeah, I guess you know in that time period, if we had gone to war, I mean, maybe the maybe the maybe if the Soviet Union had ever wanted to invade the United States, which was never indicated to be true, they might have staged from Cuba because they were so close. But yeah, that was the conceit of the movie was that they staged it all from Cuba, and the lead. The lead commie actually was um, like a, a Afro Latin person. You know, he was supposed to, you know, be of a course. Cuban man, and he was he was that character was actually sympathetic. He actually kind of felt bad about lining up all the farmers and executing them the way they were doing in the movie. But I guess you know, I don't know. Maybe Chris Matthews took it to heart, or took well, the rest of the like Cold War to heart. It sounds like he did take something to heart, or 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 perhaps just took something. Um, but you're, you're you make a great point. I don't mean to trivialize it with the movie. It is yelling fire in a crowded theater. That is very dangerous talk to be suggesting to even be raising images of something's happening where people are going to commit atrocities. And what he's talking about is a mildly left of center. Democratic candidate who has, you know, never said anything more extreme than 
you know, let's have the healthcare system that Denmark has. And, and he's equating that with, you know, with, with bloodshed and, you know, and mass executions. Uh, it's so irresponsible. Uh, it's so bad well, you to know, put that idea in people's heads. Well, you know what, what makes my blood run cold here is that the only time that we've actually seen in the United States people executed in front of us was um, JFK, RFK, and MLK, and uh, um, Malcolm X. And they were all killed ostensibly because of their left-leaning political beliefs. It wasn't the left taking people out and executing them. It was, uh, you know, somehow bumbled through, you know, whether it's whatever narrative, you know, anybody wants to, to grab onto. What is agreed upon is that a whole generation of uh political icons were wiped out and these political icons were not neoliberals. They weren't centrist. They weren't moderates. They were lefties. Yeah. Where's the prominent conservative? And I I don't want anyone ever to be uh, lawlessly killed under any circumstances, but where was the prominent uh, conservative American leader who was gunned down for his or her views? Never happened never happens. It, the, the left and anything left of center is treated like this dangerous, explosive thing that is subversive and counter to, uh, you know, somebody mentioned again the other day that the, the FBI was flat out took out as, as its mission statement, uh, holding on to America's politically conservative status quo. And it's been be clearer that was the work it was doing under Hoover. And we, yeah, we have no we have no equivalent. There was a little, there was some, some violence um, among left-leaning groups in the 60s. A little bit of that happened, um, but we didn't have the assassinations of iconic leaders like you just referenced. We didn't have waves of violence, uh, and yet it's always treated like that's the threat. I mean, my gosh, the second largest terrorist attack on American soil was committed by uh, Timothy McVeigh against a federal office building, and we still act like it's you know it's always going to be the commies that get us. For God's sake, the commies are gone. Do you remember Joy Reid like a year ago still blathering on about the Soviet Union as though that was still a thing? The Soviet Union's been gone for thirty years. And she, she had was no like, idea. Oh, you know, no, she had no idea that that the Soviet Union and Russia are two different things that signify very different uh, political nope. alignment. You know, um, I've got I've got right here former FBI official, uh, former FBI assistant director just said, "quote When I first got into the FBI, one of the missions of the FBI in its counterintelligence efforts was to keep progressives out of government." Funny that, and I think I've got wow. a new one. Uh, the election and you take the house and you uh, now convert all the committees that you have to investigating various aspects of the president of the United States, then uh, your lifeblood has to be to react to stories. So you're going to see more stories planted so that all these committees can have uh, right. uh, a lot of work to do. And I, I think this is just more of the same. And I think we can expect more of this because um, quite honestly, uh, 
the electorate in some places is putting more and more progressives and self-described socialists in positions. And uh, ironically, uh, years ago when I first got into the FBI, one of the missions of the FBI in its counterintelligence efforts was to try and keep these people out of government. Why? Because we would end up with massive dysfunction and massive disinformation and massive misinformation. And it seems to me that's where we're at today. So that was wow. Mary, that's um, that was too loud for you. Uh, so that was the former FBI assistant director on Tucker Carlson on Fox News. Just you know, telling the tales out of school. You know, letting us all in on what's really going on there. Incredible. I mean, the uh, the New York Times ran with a story today saying that uh, per a top secret intelligence briefing. The Russians are helping Trump again, and they ran this as a story, and it doesn't say – I'm looking at the story. It doesn't say a word about what the Russians are doing to help Trump, and I don't know. Who knows? Maybe they're doing something. This is the kind of nonsense that we saw you know, over the last couple of years is we're going to have you know, these secret committees of people telling everyone to be afraid and that we're under attack. We're not even going to tell you how or provide any evidence of that, and you need, to, you need to panic, and you need to be angry. And I think this is how you get – I mean, I think this is how Chris Matthews was programmed. This is how you get the idea that the Cubans are coming to kill you in Central Park when nothing remotely like that has ever happened or was ever going to happen. And the reality is if anybody was beating people up around the world or posing a threat – it was the United States. What were there 50 countries that we overturned their, their regimes? I mean, we've really guess, got yeah, to stop and, and look in the mirror. It, yeah. It, it was yeah. a lot, right? It, I mean, it, it was it's a lot. too many. We've named our own president in Venezuela, and <laughs> we want people to panic over somebody said Russia's doing something. What What is it? Is it Facebook ads again? Is that how they're bringing us down? I mean, the ability of, of of people to be convinced by voices uh, under color of authority telling them who the bad people are and what the bad people are doing is still bone chilling, like you said. And, and for you know, for a figure like Chris Matthews to raise the specter of a foreign invasion, a foreign invasion. I mean, this is this is the kind of insanity. Remember when Obama was ascending and Chuck Norris said that he was going to bring a thousand years of darkness? I mean, this is, you know, this is just a kind of xenophobia, you know, a kind of group paranoia. And with this whole, like, the commies are coming thing, you and I were drenched in it if we're roughly the same age, which I suspect we are. Um, you know, we were, we were drenched in this paranoia in our, in our youth, and it just kind of faded away. But somehow, somehow the you know the war machinery stayed, and the propaganda stayed, and the there are bad people everywhere that we have to get rid of, and we will tell you why later. Stayed, and I I, I think I think a couple of the generations younger than us are not having it. I think it didn't work on them. It didn't take. And good, <laughs> right? Um. Yes, yes. So uh, I think we have a vapor here. Sir, are you vaping? 
I, I would never do that. I'm told it, it makes your lungs like turn into jello or something. <laughs> um, yeah. So, oh, so, okay. Uh, let me just, let me just get this out of the way. You're not like a, you're not like a campaign person. You're not like a, where are no, you? No, I'm not. No, nobody, nobody pays me for anything. Uh, <laughs> I haven't even volunteered for any of the campaigns. I should, I will, I would, uh, everyone's on notice. I, I may do stuff for the birdie campaign if I can figure out what, uh, but no, I haven't, uh, not employed by anybody in that, in that realm. Well, that's all. my cue to that is my cue to uh, plug how people can get involved and you can go to Bernie Sanders' website which I believe is berniesanders.com and right on there you can volunteer and there are different ways to volunteer you can do calls which are super easy and super fun they give you the 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 script and you have an auto dialer and it's all self-contained and you can sit down and just knock out, you know, 20 calls in an evening, maybe do it with a few friends and make a a, a day of it. Uh, You can also sign up to do texts. I think the, uh, uh, sometimes these are called hustle. It depends on what, what vendor you're using. There's a vendor called hustle, but anyway, it's the same idea. You have a script, you reach out to, uh, you know, a dozen or so, a few dozen people at a time uh, texting them and you wait for them to text you back and uh, engage those who are interested, give them the information that they need either to find their polling place or to find a rally or whatever it is uh, and so on and so forth. I'm a big fan of texting and I'm a big fan of getting texts from campaigns. Because number one, I'm going to see them. I'm never going to look at an email. My my email box has over seventy thousand unopened pieces of mail in it. People don't email me anymore. Just give up. Um, then the other thing that you can do, and I know that we have a big Florida audience. We uh, the journey for Bernie, South Carolina needs people knocking doors. So get on the Bernie Sanders website. Go to volunteer. You can uh, caravan up with people for on, on a journey for Bernie, knock some doors in uh, in South Carolina. That is the highest, best use of anybody wanting to get involved right now is to get in a car and go to South Carolina. Uh, second is making the calls. And, and, and third, second and third, I think, are kind of equal. Do those texts. And even introverts can do the texts. Like it's no big deal. Like I'm, I'm a super introvert uh, in, in, in most things. I don't know. Maybe I don't know. Uh, uh, but I don't like calls. I don't like doing calls. But it's totally different when you have a script in front of you and you run through the script and, you know, respond to people, you know, just, you, you, you don't have to think about it. And so it's not you it's it, it's the script. It's whoever wrote the script, and you know, it's those are the easy things. Bernie Sanders. Oh, the other easy thing, people. If you are um, feeling, if you're feeling the burn, if you're if you got the spirit in you, you can also go to berniesanders.com and donate because money money fits all sizes. 
like 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 it, it it's just all purpose you give $27 or $47 or $147 whatever you give uh, uh it, it it's going to be used and it's going to be um put to good use this time i believe that i believe that we have a much different team this cycle than we did in the last cycle. I don't think we're going to see people roll over and take it the way that they did in 2016. Uh, what do you think, caller? Do you think that uh, you think Bernie's going to fight for this? Do you get the sense from from the campaign that they're in, in, in fighting mood or are they in the mood to work with the party? You're asking me how I think uh, people in the campaign feel? Yeah, what do you think that the, uh, what's the sense that you're getting off of the campaign in general? Like Jeff Weaver, the way that they're kind of putting themselves out there, do they seem like they're going to fight for the voters this time around? You know, because there is some uh, very reasonable criticism to the campaign in 2016 that, uh, that maybe they could have fought harder uh, maybe the uh, uh, situation at, at the convention could have gone a little bit different and been more contentious. What do you think? Do you think that the, the Bernie Sanders is in a fighting mood? I, I think the everything that I've seen, the campaign is feeling its oats in terms of being up, in terms of, you know, everything's on a knife edge right now, but it's poised. it's poised in such a way where, you know, things are looking pretty good, and uh, I think they're wisely, you know, I, I listened to Brianna Joy Gray and so forth. I, I think they're wisely focusing on the positive and, you know, uh, parrying attacks when necessary, but not um, not coming over too aggressive. Of course, there's all this pushback about people being mean online or all that. I, I think... I do worry sometimes. I love that Bernie Sanders himself is such a civil guy, uh, but I do worry. I do worry about them pushing back hard enough, depending on the level of shenanigans. And I think, I think that's about a lot of things. I think it's on us, meaning the people who are supportive of this movement, if we can call it that. I hope we can, to make it plain that things like that aren't going to work out well. You know that that there's going to be pushback, that there's going to be public discussion, and I think a lot of the anger from about people being mean online, which it mm-hmm. can be legitimate. Certainly, some people are terrible online and do threats and stuff like that that no one should do. But I think yeah, but you're about to square this upper- circle. You're about to square this circle really well, and the reason why they're going after Bernie Sanders supporters right now is because we are the pushback you know we are the ones who are like no that's a lie no you can't do that no i see you cheating you know and they want to be able to delegitimize us a priori you know before anything happens so that when something does happen and we're like no you're cheating no that's a lie no et cetera et cetera then then there's uh then then that voice has no legitimacy and i got to tell you that ain't gonna that is not going to work. I think that the campaign is going to stand behind their their supporters and for sure stand behind people, for instance, in Nevada 
who uh, um, flag problematic situations should that be the case? 100%. I think you've, as you said, you've squared the circle. I think you've nailed it. It comes back to, is this a movement or is this a person? And that's, you know, the, the Sanders campaign embodies that with not be us. And I, I think that's the answer at the end of the day. It's not up to him exclusively to jump up and down and, and, and yell and scream uh, if, if things go off the rails, if things aren't being done right. It's up to all of us. It's up to us to watch and to notice and not to be a, abusive. I think that's an unfair charge to begin with, but that's not what we're about. I think, I think it's about intelligent people watching, watching and listening and thinking critically and pushing back. And I think that's where a lot of the resentment is coming from is certain people aren't used to being pushed back against. Look at Mike Bloomberg. No one's ever spoken to like that to him in his life. Um, <laughs> And it's a beautiful thing when it happens. It is a beautiful thing. And and, and let's not mince words. Kamala Harris did not drop out of the uh, presidential campaign because people were mean online. And her supporters, K-Hive, I think are the most vicious uh, creatures I've ever seen in my life. So, you know, it wasn't like she was, you know, pushed out of existence because of, um, you know, Bernie supporters. She was pushed out of existence because her campaign was run like shit, and she had one she had one boss on the west coast and one boss on the east coast, and they both disagreed with each other and they didn't know how to raise money together they didn't know how to work together and they were a mess, yeah. Don't let anybody tell you that the reason why Kamala Harris dropped out is because somebody was doing a hashtag Kamala's a cop or, you know, whatever it is. That was completely (laughs) cop Mala. Exactly. She, she did herself in, uh, and you know, if, and when Warren is met with the, with a, uh, um, disappointing outcome, shall we say? It won't be because, be because of snake emojis. And Biden's not—he's <laughs> not tanking in the polls because of poop emojis. So, yeah, it depends on how you feel about yeah about the power of mass movements and whether people on mass are, you know, dangerous ignoramuses or whether mm-hmm. people on mass you know, can do the right thing and be wise. And there's probably a little bit of evidence on either side, but I think you've completely nailed your thesis, which is it comes down to those of us who are behind one of these candidates or another and the strength of that movement and how well it holds up to criticism and nonsense and how sort of non-viable it becomes to just sweep, sweep it away just ignore or or whatever so i hope that i hope that we've reached a point like that and i think we have and you know what we're also getting to the top of the hour so i am going to thank you caller for uh graciously sharing your time and uh i hope you keep listening and uh i will feedback and, and so on and so forth so off we go I will talk to you next time, caller. And for the rest of everybody who is uh, still listening, I think that it's um, I think it's really important that we keep our our wits about us. I think it's important that we don't get 
uh, over paranoid about the potential outcomes with regard to a contested convention, but I also think we have to be very realistic about the potential that is in front of us. Again, uh, check out, and I'm going to check this URL while we're while we're here online. Um, burn. Work. Hold on. Don't. I'm going to put this, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to put this in the show notes. I'm going to find the URL for the Burn It Down group. I just got an email from them today. So I've got their uh, contact information. I want to make sure that everybody knows how to get in touch with this group. These are the guys who are going to be on the ground in Wisconsin, Milwaukee. And so you're going to want to know about this. And in the meantime, I want to thank all of y'all for being a part of this and listening. And I will talk to you again real soon. Tune in Sunday, 7 p.m. for the regular show. I'm Brooke Hines. Again, thank you so much.